It was my freshman year in college, and I was living my dream. I grew up here in San Diego, a national city, as a matter of fact, right behind the McDonald's uh, on 16th Street. Um, and uh, I went to San Diego Academy, and as a student in San Diego Academy, I had great teachers and people that uh, wanted me to excel in life and counseled me to aim high and reach for the stars. And I had my mind set. I wanted to be an engineer, so I applied to the University of Southern California, and I got in. And there I was, my freshman year, middle of my freshman year, studying engineering at USC. I got the full Trojan sweatshirt, living on the dorm, and, and I was having the life. Out of the house, on my own, middle of downtown LA, just living the dream. I'd gotten a scholarship, because uh, it's a private school, I'd gotten a scholarship. I was, I was just living it, I was enjoying it. Uh, for the first time, San Diego Academy is a small school, <laughs> even by comparison. Um, and suddenly, you know, there's 20,000 people on campus, I was riding my bike around, just living the dream. And there, in the middle of my freshman year in college, pursuing this path, this thing that I knew I was going to do and be good at, uh, the Word of God came to me and spoke to me and said, you need to be somewhere else. It was an echo of something I had heard long ago, something that I knew. And God spoke to me during uh, uh, the winter and the spring of my freshman year, and, and he said to me, you need to be somewhere else. And, and I knew what, what God was trying to say. See, since I was a kid, God had placed it in my heart to follow in my father's footsteps. My father was a minister in South America and Bolivia. So when I was a child, I had grown up believing that I was going to be just like him, but then he died. And my life got turned upside down, and I figured I'd find my own way in life, find my own path. And there I was, freshman year, uh, pursuing this path, when suddenly God said, do you remember? And I did, and I knew. There I was, living the dream, but I knew, I just knew I had to make a change. I came home that summer and sat down with my parents, and I told them, Mom, Dad, I'm going to change my major. I'm going to give up my scholarship, and I'm going to go study theology. They sat patiently, lovingly, and then they said, no, you're not. My dad sat me down and he said, bad decision, son. In case you haven't heard, there's no money in pastoring. <laughs> he said, here's what I counsel you to do. He said, I want you to stay the course, finish your degree, get a good education, get an actual degree, then you can do whatever you want after that. <laughs> I just knew in my heart, I just knew in my heart that God was calling. And I said, Dad, I know I can't do that. I have to go now. And he says, you're going to miss out on all the money. No one's going to help you. Have you ever had to make a decision not knowing what the outcome is going to be? Have you ever been put in a situation where you know the path, but you're just not sure how you're going to get there? Well, there I was, 19 years old, and God said, leave everything that you have, everything that you have been given, and I want you to just branch out and go, and I will provide for you. So what would you do? What would you do? The story that we've been reading in the book of Elijah, I mean, uh, uh, in the story of Elijah in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17, is, is a story of God teaching his prophet and us, his people, that he can be trusted. We find in the book of 1 Kings, by the way, I know some of you guys are visiting us today, so we're going to kind of go fast and catch up because we've been talking the story of Elijah uh, this entire month of April. 
And the story in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 17 tells us that God sends Elijah, the prophet, by giving him a command, Elijah, go and do this. It's, it's, it's where he shows up. And what we learn for, about Elijah right from the very beginning is that he does whatever God tells him to do. Because Elijah has made a decision that God can be trusted. And God tells Elijah, go and tell the king there will be no rain. You are probably all familiar with this. And if you're not, you can read along in chapter 17. Go and tell the king there will be no rain unless I say so. And then he does. And there is no rain. It's like San Diego, no rain. <laughs> For three years. And Elijah, at the, at the word of God, uh, leaves the palace and goes into hiding. God tells Elijah, now here's what I want you to do next. I want you to go by this brook out in this hidden place, and I will take care of you. And Elijah leaves. He goes by a brook, and uh, you know the story. Um, birds bring him food, and, and he drinks water from the brook. He's being fed by birds. And after the water runs out, the Bible tells us in chapter 17, book of 1 Kings, that God tells Elijah, now I want you to go to a foreign land where they don't believe in me, and I want you to find a widow, and I want you to ask her to feed you. And so he does. And this is where we began at the beginning of the month, where Elijah goes and encounters this widow. If you don't know the story, um, there had been a severe drought, famine, there was no food, and as a widow, she didn't have a way to make money or, or, or gain resources. She had a son. And the Bible tells us in 1 Kings that she had a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil left, and she was out gathering sticks, ready to make her last meal, the last little bit of food, and then she was preparing to die. And Elijah shows up on the scene, and Elijah says, can you get me a drink? And she's like, mm, maybe. And then he says, and by the way, can you bring me some food? Because that's the right thing to do. That's a smart move. When somebody agrees to help you, just ask for a little bit more. <laughs> that's Elijah style. So by the way, can you get me some food? And she says, now listen, I would have given you a drink, but I can't feed you because all I've got is enough for me and my son to have our last meal, and then we're going to die. And Elijah says, okay, I get that. But first, make me some food. Then out of what's left over, do whatever you're going to do. It's a fascinating story if you've been there. We read it here earlier this month because it's as if Elijah is testing this woman and as, as he's inviting her into his story, he is inviting us. You know the, the, how the story goes. She goes and makes home, she goes home and makes a cake for him. And, and as she provides for him, the little bit of oil, the little bit of flour lasts for the entire duration of the drought because... What she needs to learn, what Elijah's trying to help us learn, and what we need to learn is that it all belongs to God. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Okay, so be careful because when you say amen, it means you agree. It all belongs to God. Amen? amen. Uh, I know some of you guys are like, oh, I'm not so sure, Pastor. Where are you going with this? Where are you going with this? Well, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says the cattle on a thousand hills are his. The Bible tells us that it all belongs to God. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens, the earth, and everything that is in it. God started it all. It all comes from him. It all belongs to him. And over and over throughout the rest of the Bible, God has been trying to remind us of that. In this particular story, Elijah comes to the woman and she says, I'm going to die. This is all I have left. And Elijah says, do you know that it all belongs to God anyway? So if it all belongs to God, she says, trust him. Trust him. If it all belongs to God, trust him. So Elijah's trying to teach us by inviting her in the story that God can be trusted. Up until this time, Elijah has learned that God can be trusted because he's been protecting him. He's been being fed by birds and... and, and don't you think that's crazy? No one else? Has a bird ever brought you food? 
Usually they take your stuff and they go. But no one ever brings you. Birds don't bring you food, but Elijah has been fed. But it's not enough for Elijah to know this. God wants other people to know this. So he, t he, t he tells him, go and see this widow and invite her into the story. And so as she trusts God, she learns that God can be trusted. If you read the rest of the story, at one point her son dies and Elijah comes and prays over the son and he comes back to life because God is trying to teach him over and over again and teach us that God can be trusted. Can you say amen to that? Okay, be careful. Only if you agree. Can God be trusted? Are you sure? I think some of you have doubts. I understand that. I understand that. I understand that, especially because when we face situations we don't understand or difficulties we can't make sense of, we begin to doubt that God can be trusted. But it is God's intention that we would meet circumstances that we can't handle on our own. That's God's intention because those are the times when we need him and can ask for his help. And that's why he puts Elijah in this situation. And he's trying to teach us that God can be trusted. In specific, in this story, chapter 17 and chapter 18, God wants us to learn that he wants us to trust him with our future. See, you know the story because if you've been here or if you've read it, you know what's going to happen next. Elijah's going to have this great big showdown on Mount Carmel, a, a very familiar story. But God is building an arsenal of experience with Elijah so that when he meets this great challenge, he will not go in it, into it kind of wondering and wavering. So he builds experience after experience where God delivers, God delivers, God delivers, so that when Elijah is faced with a new situation, an ever more challenging situation, he can, in fact, speak with clarity. So that's what we find <clears throat> in uh, chapter 18. The Bible tells us that after the drought was over, Elijah comes back into the scene and he goes back to the king and he says, God has said there will be rain. It says, but before that, let's have a showdown. You bring all the people of Israel. Remember the story? I'm just going to review quickly for you guys that weren't here. We're going to meet on top of Mount Carmel. You bring all the people. I will stand on one side with one altar, and you bring the prophets of Baal, and, 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 and we, you build another altar. See, here's the deal, friends. The reason God is taking control of the winds and the rains and the dew is because the people have forgotten that it all belongs to God and that he can be trusted. So if you read the story in 1 Kings, you realize that the king at the time had begun to seek out other ideas and other neighboring beliefs and pursued other gods. It's as if he decided that God could not be trusted, so he was trying to find another way of making sense of life, making things work. And so Elijah says, let's settle this one for and for all. Can God be trusted or is Baal God? And they meet there on Mount Carmel. You recall the story. And there's two altars built. And, and Elijah says, okay, you guys go first. And by the way, whichever God answers with fire, that will be God. And everyone said, that sounds good. And the prophets of Baal, you know the story. They begin to cry and, 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 and dance and do all their things and asking for their God to answer. But nobody answered because Baal is not real. I don't know if that is news to you, but Baal is not real. And so they cried and they cried and they tried to get a response from an inanimate object, from an uh, untruthful idea, and there was no answer. 
So Elijah said at the end of the day, by, by the time of the evening sacrifice, okay, that's enough. Now, let me. And the Bible tells us that he had the altar built. They poured water on it three times, dug a ditch. You remember the story. And then he begins to pray, and he cries out to God there in chapter 18 of the book of 1 Kings. And he says, answer me, O God, so that the people will know that you are the one true God and that you are turning their hearts back to you. And God answers with fire. Very cool, right? Anybody ever wish God could answer with fire to your prayers? Don't you? Is it only a pastor's dream? Well, I imagine you want some fire at some point. Wouldn't you want God to answer deliberately? That's exactly what happens to Elijah. And the fire comes down from heaven and it devours the altar and everything and even licks up the water they had put into the trench. And all the people were in awe and they bowed down and they began to worship God. And they wiped out all the prophets of Baal. God wants us to trust him with our future. And in this moment, he's reclaiming that future for the people of Israel. They had chosen a different path following these beliefs and these ideas. And God comes in and he says, no, return your hearts back to me because I have a different path for you to follow. And he uses Elijah as an instrument of reclaiming their future. And Elijah comes, he participates in this moment, wipes out these prophets, these ideas and these beliefs, and he's trying to establish or reestablish the true inheritance of the people of Israel. And some would say that that would be Elijah's greatest accomplishment, right? When we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, if you can make fire come down from heaven, that's pretty good. Some would say that that was the climax of the, of the pinnacle of his prophetic experience. Problem is, that's not what the Bible says, because immediately after this, when Jezebel threatens him, Elijah runs away and he hides in a cave for months. Until finally God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I've had it. I'm the only one who cares. I'm the only one. I'm the only one. I've done everything I could for you, but nobody listens, and now they're trying to kill me, and I've had it. I can't do no more. And God says, you misunderstood your mission. If you read the story there, it's in chapter 19. God comes to Elijah, and he says, go back the way you came, because your work is not done. In fact, Elijah completely misunderstood the mission at this point. Even though he had been faithful and God had been building an arsenal of trust, he was unwilling to trust God with his future. So he says, I'm going to run away from Jezebel. I'm going to hide myself. I'm going to protect myself because I'm the only one left. And God says, you are not the only one left. He tells him, in fact, I have reserved for myself many who have not bowed down to Baal. So go back the way you came, chapter 19. Go back the way you came and anoint Elisha who will succeed you as prophet. It's a fascinating moment. Elijah thought, the one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do this big show and everyone's going to turn attention to God. But God was trying to teach him that the most important thing he was to do was not the fire, but it was the succession of leadership, the succession of the prophetic work. So God says, go back. Go back the way you came and anoint Elisha, who will succeed you as prophet. See, friends, if we're going to trust God with our future, we have to understand this truth. That God is commanding us always to raise up new generations of believers. 
That's exactly what he says to Elijah, even though he thought, oh, my job is done. I made fire come down. And God says, no, no, no. That, all that was to prepare you to teach the next generation. So go back and anoint Elisha. See, this is not a new command, by the way. Raise up new generations of believers. It's a command that that's God speaks throughout the Bible over and over again. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when God, when raising the people of Israel, says, Now, all these things that I'm teaching you, teach them to your children. Pass it along. Talk about it when you wake up. Talk about it when you lay down. When you're walking on the road, in your life, share with them. Uh, tie it onto your hands. Write it on the doorposts of your houses. In other words, God is saying, I want to bless the generations. He reemphasizes this in the commandments. Commandment number three, God says, I am a jealous God. He says, and I will punish the sins of the father. You all know this, right? I'll punish the sins of the father of the third and fourth generations. Do you know that what you do has effect in the people that come after you in your family? And that some of us, not by our choosing, but are suffering the effects of decisions made by the people who came before us, Right? But God says, for those who love me, my plan is to bless for a thousand generations. It has always been God's intention to use generational blessings to bless the world. It's what he said to Abraham. Abraham, you will have a son. Abraham, your descendants will be like the sands in the sea, the stars in the sky, and I'm going to bless the entire world through you. It's always been God's design, and that's why when he called the people uh, out of Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai and gives us those commandments and the instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is saying, if you faithfully follow, then you will be for me a nation of priests, and you will carry these things, these ideas into the world to bless. It's always been God's intention. And it wasn't just Old Testament. Do you know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28? I'm sure you do. We call it the Great Commission. If you're a Christian, this is the one mantra that you believe is true about yourself. Jesus says, and go into, anyone? Ooh, okay, no one. All right, uh, a little bit. Go into all the world, and what? And do what, by the way? Travel, see the sights, Taj Mahal. Eiffel Tower, Leaning Tower, Pisa. What? Why are we supposed to go into all the world? And make disciples. We're supposed to preach the word of God. We're supposed to teach the word of God. We're supposed to baptize. He says, go into the world and make disciples. Do you guys know what a disciple is? Anybody know what a disciple is? It's an archaic word now, actually, and doesn't get used very often. But the simplest way to express it is a follower. A follower. And Jesus' method was essentially that, right? You recall? Jesus begins his public ministry on earth, and he comes and he sees somebody and says, You, follow me. Come and follow me. Am I telling you something you haven't heard? No, right? Because you're looking at me like... Y'all never read the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? Okay. Well, I'm just going to assume that you're just staring at me because I look weird. Okay, fine. All right. I don't care. 
Jesus says, come and follow me. He says it over and over again. Come and follow me. That's his direct call. Come and follow me. Discipleship in Jesus' expression is, come and see what I do. Come and observe. In fact, the disciples said, where are you going? Jesus answered, literally, come and see. Come and see. It's always been Jesus' intention. So he had these disciples who came and followed him, and he raised up a new generation of believers. See, Jesus work on earth was about this so he commands us to do the same when he left when he was taken up he speaks to the disciples says now receive power this is Acts chapter 1 verse 8 receive power but then you will be my witnesses Jerusalem Judea Samaria and then to the ends of the earth it's always been God's intention it is not a new command but somehow for many of us we have ignored and forgotten and we have uh, done what Elijah is doing in our story where we said it's all about us I'm trying so hard and I have not gotten the recognition why don't people do what I want them to do why 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 do I feel alone and under attack and under threat and God says, because it's not about you. Everything that I do with you is to prepare you to bless the generations. Uh, I was at a conference, a leadership conference a couple years ago where I was very concerned with doing my job better and how can I be a better leader? How can I be more successful? What do I got to do? And, and there was a speaker up there. His name is Andy Stanley. He's a pastor in the Atlanta area at a, North Point, a church called North Point Church. And he, he says something that just really shook me up and has changed the course of, of my own personal direction. And this is what he said. He said, your greatest contribution in life might not be something that you do. It might be someone that you raise. What do you think about that? There I was in the audience, and I remember thinking, oh, I got to do this better. I got to do this better. Why isn't this working? Why is this? And God spoke to me, and he said, listen, maybe this isn't about what you can accomplish. Maybe it's about someone that I've sent to you. And it just really messed me up and shook my perspective. Because that's the story here in the book of 1 Kings. Elijah is concerned. I just rained on fire, but that's not good enough. I don't know what else to do. And God said, it's not about what you can do. It's about who I'm sending you to. Your greatest contribution in life may not be something that you do, but someone that you raise. Think about that for just a moment. Because for many of us, that are parents especially, we're so obsessed with accomplishing that we're ignoring the most important people that God has given to us. Pastor Sam told us last week that we live in a nation that has a, a, an epidemic of fatherlessness. And that 43% of all uh, children live in fatherless homes in the U.S. Can you believe that? I was listening to it last week and I was like, whoa, that's a lot. Don't you think? I know that this, there are valid reasons, but just as a whole, there are so many of our children are growing up in homes without a father. And what that means is that they're missing a voice, missing a particular help, and God sends us into those voids, and he says, that's why I've sent you. So here's the truth, friends. We all need spiritual fathers and mothers. We all need spiritual fathers and mothers. The Bible makes that very clear. 
In the book of First uh, uh, Timothy, God speaks through Paul, and he tells Paul, and he, uh, Paul tells Timothy, he says, you might have spiritual guides, but you need spiritual parents. There's a big difference, as Pastor Sam pointed out. Spiritual guides tell you what's wrong. Spiritual parents love you through it. And we all need spiritual parents, spiritual fathers and mothers, those who are going to invest in us and help us along the way. They don't have to be our biological parents. We need spiritual fathers and mothers. And that is why God has given us a church community. We all need someone to help us along the way. And if we fail to recognize that, we're going to continue to try and try and feel alone when God has, in fact, provided for us. At the same time, we are all been called to disciple, to mentor, and to empower so while we need spiritual parents, God has also made it possible for us to become spiritual parents. Do you see the generational connection here? If you look at the rest of the story, as Pastor Sam was pointing out, Elijah is faithful, finally, after God says, what are you doing here? And he comes and he blesses Elisha. And if you read the rest of the story, Elisha doesn't say, yay, hooray for me. He takes what has been given and then he passes it on to the school of the prophets. And then it grows. It's just like that. Jesus lived with the disciples, but when he left, the disciples blessed others and the work grows and multiplies. It's always been about the generations. So while we all need spiritual fathers, we've also been called to be spiritual fathers. While we all need spiritual mothers, we've also been called to be spiritual mothers. That's been our focus this month. And so for the remainder of our time, I want to give you some practical tips for mentoring. Some practical tips for mentoring. First, for those of us who are looking for a spiritual parent, if you're looking to learn from a spiritual parent, um, these come from Craig Rochelle, another pastor in the Atlanta area. He says, if you're looking uh, to learn from a spiritual parent, here's what you should do first. Define what you need from a spiritual parent. He cites some examples that I thought were very clever. Uh, he says, essentially, look at what your life needs and then find someone who has experience in this area. Let's say you are a young parent, a young mom, a young father. You're not quite sure what the right thing to do is. Look ahead and find somebody in your world, in your community, perhaps, in fact, in your own church community, who's a little bit ahead and, and, and ask them, how do you do it? Define what you need. If you're starting a new business and you want to know how to be ethical in your business practices and you're not quite sure, find someone who's been doing it already. If you're newly a grandparent and you want to be a good one and you're not quite sure what to do, find someone who is doing it already. If you're in a, uh, a, a significant relationship and you're close to marriage, you're not quite sure, find someone along the way who can give you counsel and advice. We all need spiritual parents. Find someone who can bless you in the areas of your need. But first, understand what your needs are. Define what you need from a spiritual parent. Number two, once you find them, and by the way, if you pray, God will tell you who to go to. I have to tell you, that's not always the person you think it's going to be. Once you find them, ask questions. Pastor Grishel says, ask questions, listen and take notes. Listen and take notes. If you're serious about learning, and I think we should be, then ask questions and take notes. Now, oftentimes I have people come and talk to me, and they say, Pastor, I need some help. And I said, okay. And then they just talk the whole time. And I'm like, okay, glad we had this talk. 
There's not much I could do. I mean, I'm a good listener. But if you really want help, if you want, if you want to learn something, then ask questions. And then take notes. I also meet with people who say, oh, that was a good idea. What did you say that one time we met? And I'm like, mm, I don't remember. <laughs> if you're serious about learning, ask questions. Uh, what kind of questions you might say? Simple questions like, how did you do it? What's the best advice you can give me? I'm a new parent. What should I be on the lookout for? I have a teenage daughter. Please help me out. <laughs> help me interpret these things. I just started a new business. What's the best bank? Ask questions and then listen and take notes. Pastor Groeschel says, that's... That's how you learn and how you benefit. Number three, put into practice what you see. Observe. And what you see them do, put that into practice. The best thing you can do to honor someone that's taking the time to bless you is to take their advice. Those of you guys that are parents, don't you just hate it when somebody asks for your advice and then they just go, ah, okay, whatever. Right? Don't you just go like, why ask me that? <laughs> right? If you're serious about learning, then put into practice what you see. Put into practice what they've told you. Try it at least. Try it at least. Number four, show honor. If you have found someone who's going to invest in you, who's going to spend time with you, and he says, by the way, Pastor Groeschel says, the most valuable resource someone can give you is their time. It's not their money. They can always make more money. They can't make more time. So if somebody chooses to give you their time, then show honor. Be grateful for that. Write a thank you note. Express gratitude. Or, or, or serve them in some capacity. He says, if they need a car washed, wash their car. Express your gratitude in some way. Show honor and you will create for yourself goodwill. What about those of us <clears throat> who are called to be spiritual parents, which I believe is everyone? There's number one. Remember that we are all called and no one is excluded. Jesus says, go and make disciples. And that's not just for the adults. It's for everyone. And for those of you who are thinking, well, what, I don't know how to do it. I, I'm not qualified. I'm no expert. Failure makes you qualified. So if you've ever failed at anything, guess what? You're qualified to be a spiritual parent. Because at the very least, you can say, don't do that. And sometimes that's the most important advice you can get. You don't have to be an expert. You just have to say, well, this is a mistake I made. Avoid that. If you failed at anything, you're qualified. You're qualified. Amen for that. Number two, God will lead you to the one or the ones that you can bless. After uh, Pastor's sermon last week, I know that there are some people looking around saying, okay, who am I going to, who am I going to pick? All right, I'm going to, because she said parents wanted, if you be an Elijah to someone, and then some of you guys were like, okay, okay let me zero in. Who am I going to get? Who am I going to get? And you probably did find someone. By the way, I'm going to be your Elijah, and your dress is too short. That's not the way it works. That's really not the way it works. The Bible tells us there in the book of uh, uh, 1 Kings that Elijah did not want to pick Elisha. It was God who said, Elijah, I have chosen your successor. Go and anoint him. See, God will lead you to the people you are going to bless. Oftentimes when you are seeking them out on your own, you will be looking with the wrong mentality. Instead, we need to pray and ask God to lead us to the people he wants us to bless. 
and he will because it all belongs to God and God can be trusted. You said amen to that. So if God says, go here and do this and this person, then guess what? That's where you're supposed to go. God will lead you. Number three, when you get there, when you find that person, be an example in the way that you live. Parenting is not so much about what you say. It's about what you do. Right? As Pastor Sam said, faith is more caught than taught. You know what's funny about kids? They don't look like they're listening. They don't look like they're paying attention. But when you turn around, you will find them doing exactly what you do, not what you say. Ever notice that? It's the craziest thing. You're driving down the street, you're at a supermarket, and then you hear somebody, voice of your kids, saying something that you've said, but you've never told them to say it, but you hear it. Anybody? You're like, oh, no, where did that come from? Who told you how to say that? They're like, you? <laughs> right? It's fascinating and it's very scary. But here's the truth. If you're going to be a spiritual parent, be concerned with how you live. Just be an example. Even in your failures, acknowledge them. Be an example and say, look, I tried. I failed. Don't do that. Don't hold yourself up as a standard. Just show your authentic attempts to live faithfully. And they will benefit from that. Number four, just tell stories. Here's what happened. Here's what God did. You don't have to have fancy charts and, and know the Bible backwards. And That's not really what God is asking. He's just asking you to share the story of how God was faithful to you. See, that's why God brings Elijah through these moments. So that when he meets Elisha, he can say, yeah, here's what, here's what happened. There was no rain. Here's what God did. He brought me food and water. Yeah, here's what happened. Uh, there was no, no food and, and, and everything had dried up. But here's what God did. He sent me to a widow who blessed me with food. You see what I mean? Everything that we've been through is an opportunity to bless somebody else with that experience. All we got to do is tell the story and give God the credit. That's crucial here. If God doesn't get the credit, then the story is about you. And last one. Craig Rochelle says, share your life, open your heart, and let somebody in. Do you know that's exactly Jesus' method, as I was pointing out? Jesus says, come and follow me. He didn't just say, okay, I'll meet you guys at church, by the way, Saturday morning, 11 o'clock, and I'm going to preach, and you guys listen, and then we'll see you later. In fact, he preached to many people, but he only discipled 12. Those 12, he said, come and live with me. He opened his heart. And he let them in. You know how much he let them in? The Bible tells us he had one disciple who would lay down on his lap. It's called the beloved one. The Bible tells us that when, when, when uh, his disciples betrayed him, it hurt Jesus. That's how much he let them in. See? If we're going to be spiritual parents, you have to open your life and let somebody in. Share your life. Invite somebody over for a meal. Let them drive your car. You can't parent from a distance. You cannot parent from a distance. You have to parent up close. Some of you know what I'm talking about because as a kid, you wish your parent was closer. Some of you know what it means when somebody tries to parent you from a distance, just telling you what to do and what's wrong and how, what, what your mistakes are. But you, that's not parenting. 
And you can't spiritually parent from a distance either. You can't just show up and say, do this, this was wrong with you, blah, blah, blah. That's not enough. Jesus' method is come and see, come and follow me. And that's what we have been tasked with. We are all called. God will lead us. So let's be an example. Just tell the story of what God did and then share your life. Open up your life. Share your life. Now, a few extra tips. This is extra credit, by the way. Remember this from last week. Be a mentor, not a tormentor. <laughs> That's from Pastor Sam. Be a mentor, not a tormentor. If God has placed this on your heart, and I believe he is calling all of us, don't be a tormentor. Your job, friends, your job in mentoring is not to fix someone, but it's to build somebody up. Mentoring is not fixing someone. Mentoring is not, hey, here's what's wrong with you. Here's what's wrong with you. You're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. I know you've had plenty of people who did that to your life, and it doesn't help. Mentoring is building somebody up. Mentoring is helping them be put together. So here's how you do it. Replace here's what's wrong with you with I believe in you. How can I help you? I believe in you. How can I help you? After I'd given up my scholarships and transferred in my school, suddenly I was uh, living out of a car, not even my own car, sleeping in people's floors. In fact, I had some friends who would go to class and then they'd let me sleep in their bed because I, I had no money, I had nowhere to go, I didn't have any books, but there I was at school. I had no financial assistance at that time. I was kind of uh, not from my parents or my family. I was trying to do the best that I could. And I came home after that first year at my new school studying theology. And my parents were, uh, like I said, not too pleased with my direction. And um, they said, what are you going to do now? And I remember it's the early 90s, and you, if you were around that time, I know some of y'all weren't born yet, but if, if you were around that time, you know that there was no money anywhere. Jobs had dried up, and I spent all summer looking for jobs, pounding the pavement. I had this, you know, I was a student at the University of Southern California. I had all these skills, but no one would hire me. <laughs> I tried everywhere. Retail, uh, hotel industry. I tried warehouses. I got a one-day job as a security guard. That's right. Security guard, observe and report. I lasted one day. <laughs> and uh, I was down on the dumps. I didn't know what was gonna, I didn't know how I was gonna make it back to school the next year. And then I had someone in my life who called me and he said this, I believe in you. How can I help you? His name is Roger, he's my cousin. And Roger said to me, listen, you come and live with me. And I moved to LA. He was pastoring a church, a multicultural church. He says, you come in and live with me, and you work in my church. And he gave me a job. I had no training. I'd never done it before. And he said, you're going to be the youth pastor for the summer. What do I do? He says, just try your best. And he housed me. He gave me money for gas, and he put me to work. I spent that summer in Compton. I even got jumped once. Had a black eye, street cred. But my cousin said to me, I believe in you, even when others wouldn't. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here. I believe in you. How can I help you? Friends, we have been given this great opportunity. God wants to bless our church through the generations, but we've got to be on the lookout for who he's calling us to bless. Not to fix, but to bless. Replace, here's what's wrong with you. When you look at the next generations, when you look across the aisles, you see some young people, you see somebody's, ah, here's what's, no, no, no. Replace that with, I believe in you. 
How can I help you? When Jesus was walking the earth, he saw plenty of people who had many things wrong. The fishermen, the tax collectors, many things wrong. He didn't say, here's what's wrong with you. He said, I believe in you. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Friends, I am convinced that our church has been given a particular task. And we have been given a particular privilege and opportunity to disciple, to mentor and empower, especially the next generations. And if you would just band together with me, and if we follow God's purpose, imagine what he could do. Just look around. Look at the young people that are in our community. Yes, we have some visitors too. <laughs> but look around. Imagine what God could do if you and I, rather than critiquing, if we said, no, I believe in you. If we opened up our lives and shared our lives and we build them up rather than try to fix them. What amazing things we could do because the most important contribution we make might not be something that we do, but somebody that we raise. I pray to God that we would raise wonderful people here and that we would commit to loving everyone whom God has sent, especially new generations. And I challenge you to do the same. Let's stand for a closing song.